So this morning, we are going to jump into God's Word and continue our series called Joy in Christ, and um, we have two more weeks after this to be in the book of Philippians. I have a challenge before me today, and that is to impart to you some deep truth I hope you can grab a hold of, because I believe it will change your life, but it's maybe not as easy to unpack it as I'd like to think it is. So will you pray with me? Jesus, you've promised that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. And so Jesus, we together collectively, whether we've known you for many years, or maybe this is our first experience of trying to discover who you are, we ask of you, Jesus, that through your spirit who dwells with us and is in this room, that you would be our teacher from your word, and you would instruct us not only with head knowledge, but with heart and experiential knowledge. Each of us have had different kinds of weeks, but all of us have had the same human experience. Lord, you know what that human experience is like because you became one of us and you walked and lived in a world of challenges, a world of temptations, a world that has its highs and its lows. And so you know what our weeks have been like as human beings. But we pray to you, Jesus, through your spirit, that you would speak, you would encourage, you would exhort, and you would direct, and you would enlighten as only your spirit can do through the mouth of someone as broken as uh, humble as I am, Lord, at times I am humbled by just the privilege of being able to try to impart your word. But I just ask, Jesus, that through me, your spirit would speak. Amen. Do you ever come to church expecting anything? I mean, if I like did a survey, what do you expect when you come to church? I expect to see my friends, expect to, you know, see some, you know, the band going at it, rocking pretty strong. I expect Carrie to sit up there on a stool and try to talk to us. But I'm not talking about all the programming expectations. I want to know, do you come to church expecting God to stir your heart? I trust you do. Every Sunday that I get up and it was an hour earlier today, wasn't it, everybody? Um, by the way, I'm glad to see you here. If anybody does walk in here in about 30 minutes, we'll just overlook them. But um, I say to Lord Jesus, this Sunday, again, break through the ordinariness of our week and the challenges and speak life to us. And I trust that each and every week that you would come with a spirit of expectation, not for the programming elements, but to meet with the Lord Jesus and to ask him to bring change to your life. Because some of us in this room are desperate for change in our situations, in our homes, in our workplace, in our families, in our personal lives, maybe our health, maybe our emotions, whatever it may be, we need change. But that change that we need is change that needs to be directed ultimately to the glory of God and what he wants to do in our life. So what do you expect when you come to church? I trust you come expecting to meet with the Spirit of God himself. The Apostle Paul, in a prison, writing a letter to Christians in a city named Philippi on the north part of the Aegean Sea. He's instructing them how to have joy, how to rejoice, how to be glad, even in the midst of trials. He was in the middle of one himself, being in prison. But yet, 19 times, as we've said, he refers to rejoice, joy, or gladness in this brief letter he sends to these Christians. And last week, we got into really some core uh, teaching of Paul as he exhorts them. And he told them to watch out for the dogs. 
the people that want to mess your life up with a bunch of do's and don'ts and keep you away from the joy that is found in knowing Christ and the grace through which He can save you and I. And then he lists all the things that he could be so proud of in his life. I mean, he was an A-lister. If he was a part of the NFL draft, he would have been going number one. All right? He was at the top, the pinnacle of being a religious person. But he said it was all to loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And then he says this in a key essential verse. It's a great verse to have memorized. He says this in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, he's personalizing this, saying, I want this, but in doing this, he's telling them they should want this too. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This is, this is his passion. This is his heart. This is what consumes him. All right? And we could all pause and sort of take a reflection on our life. What is it that consumes us? What passion do we pursue each and every week? What do we want to know? Or what do we want to have? Or what do we want to be? What's all consuming for us? Is it the money? Is it the position? Is it the power? Is it the pleasure? Is it the purpose? What is it that consumes us? Well, here's Paul who spent all of his life climbing the religious ladder, checking every box of this is what a, a good religious person is. And he says it's all lost. It's all filthy rags. It's, it's, it's like dung. It's rubbish. Compared to this which I pursue, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Now, the reason I want to come back and capture this verse and exhort us is because whether you are in middle school, high school, college, you're a young adult, an adult, middle season of life, senior citizen of life, whatever it may be, at every juncture, I want to challenge you to make this your passion to know Christ. This life fades quickly. We step into eternity. Eternity is not about heaven. Eternity is about Jesus. And the people that aren't found in eternity are those who in this life have no interest in knowing Jesus. Why would you want to be in heaven if you didn't want to know Jesus on this side? Then heaven I don't know if it'd be much of a heaven if you don't have interest in knowing Jesus eternally. But you don't have to wait until you see Jesus face to face. I long for that. You long for that maybe. But Jesus through his spirit as we prayed is present even in this room. And if you've invited Christ into your life, his spirit is present with you. You can't shake him. Have you ever tried to get something off of you sometime? You can't get Jesus off of you or out of your life. If you're a Christ follower, he dwells within you. And if he dwells within you every place you go, guess what? He's going with you. He's hanging out with you. He wants to get to know you. He wants to help you and encourage you. He wants to enlighten you. You have a relationship with Jesus that you need to pursue every day at every season of life. Do you want to know Christ and his power? Or are you enticed? by all other kinds of things in life. It's a question I need to ask every day and every week in my own life. Because the things of this world creep in. Oh, maybe some prestigious goal that you have, and it's a rightful goal, but it can become all-consuming rather than Christ becoming all-consuming. You know some of the most disappointed people in life is when they've climbed the success ladder their whole life, and they've reached a pinnacle, And when they've reached that which they thought would bring them ultimate fulfillment, it's let them down. That's a lonely place to be. Paul was on that trajectory. His life was changed through an encounter with Jesus. He's now exhorting Christians. He would exhort us through his word today. He says, take scripture, learn from it, but I want to teach you what I've learned. And he says, I want you to know Christ as I desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, part of that is also... 
sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's not saying there, oh, I hope I can someday become part of the resurrection and see Jesus face to face. No, he's saying that in this goal, this effort, he knows it's going to happen. But he prays and he challenges himself every day to grow in knowing Christ. So now we step into verse 12. So in verse 12, he says this, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I was taught growing up that Paul might have had a little bit of an arrogant side to him, and we're going to look at a verse here in a second that some people references that will see his arrogance. I don't believe that he has an arrogance. I believe that he has confidence in many ways, but he is definitely making a humble statement here. Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect. He says, hey, I want to know Christ, but boy, I'm on this journey, and this journey is a challenge because some weeks I'm doing pretty good trying to know Jesus and live for him, and then there's other weeks and I'm not doing that great. But he says, you know, uh, I want to press on. I want to press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. There are a lot of people in this world. And one of the things that's easy for me to get distracted by is the idea of being overwhelmed by all the people in the world. And I wonder if God gets overwhelmed by all the people he created in the world. Ever think about that? No, he doesn't. He's an infinite God. But I end up imposing my human thinking upon God, and I say to myself, well, <clears throat> God's probably got plans for some other great people and that kind of thing, and he's, it's too busy. He, he just sort of overlook me. I'm really a small person. I'm, you know, I'm not doing that great, right? No, you need to understand, God is everywhere present, all-powerful, all-knowable, and God created you, and he's redeemed you through Christ, and he has a plan for your life. So when Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, Jesus would come down every aisle here, grab a hold of you, and say, I want to know you, and I've got a plan, and I've got a purpose for you, Michael. How old are you, Michael? How old are you? You're 11. Jesus Christ is getting a hold of your life because he has a plan for you. Josh, how old are you? I can ask that, right? 36. Jesus has taken a hold of your life, Josh, and he has a plan and he has a purpose. I won't ask a woman because then I'll get in trouble. <laughs> you think of yourself. You, put your name in there. God, through Christ, has gotten a hold of your life for a plan and a purpose. And Paul says, I want to press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Maybe you've come through one of those weeks where you got banged up pretty bad and people maybe even told you to your face that you weren't worth anything. Or maybe because their actions or their lack of actions. You know, I was talking to someone this last week who was putting a lot of time into trying to court a girl and she just wasn't reciprocating. And so we finally just had an us talk. And after the us talk, it was like, okay, I guess we're just friends. That's always disappointing and discouraging, right? It wasn't reciprocated, that mutual uh, forward interest as strongly as hoped for. But with Jesus, you never have to be disappointed that way. He wants to be in an intimate, knowing, experiential relationship with you. And you need to grab a hold of that as surely as Christ Jesus has grabbed a hold of you. Because some of you have been banged up by other people so much or you have fallen in some ways that you would think, God... You really want to get a hold of me? Yes. And he wants to know you. But do you want to know him? So, Paul's saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sharing and sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's not going to let go of it yet. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now the Apostle Paul, he has a lot of sports analogies. I wonder today if he was around what kind of analogies he would get from our modern sports. 
But in particular, he had the vision of an Olympic kind of race that was back during his day and the idea of a runner straining towards what is ahead. I am trying to reach that goal, all right? The idea of you wanting to know Christ. Think in terms of an athlete coming across that finish line with the grimace on the face and trying to put their chest down or whatever to get across that line. Or if you're a football person, I think it happened in the Super Bowl this last week, I mean this last uh, um, go-around where you know it was one of those catches and the, the receiver is running towards the goal line and they stretch to get the ball over the goal line. And they get it over the goal line. Of course, then it bounces, and then they have to review the whole thing and decide if it was actually good or not, which really ruins part of the game. But, you know, that straining to get over the goal line, the pressing through the tape at the finish line, that's the kind of energy level that Paul's saying you got to bring to the table. you got to bring it to the table. I'm not quite sure who said it. I won't even attempt to, because then I'll feel bad later on that I misquoted it. But one of the favorite quotes I have from some really smart Christian somewhere is the statement that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. You hear me with that? It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Difficult, not in the sense of we're saved by grace, uh, God's grace through faith, and it's not what we've done. But the difficult thing is I have some people say, you know, I've been there before. I tried that Jesus thing, or I went to church for a while. I even made a commitment to Christ, but, you know, it just really never panned out. I look at celebrities a lot of times that have supposedly had born-again experiences, and, and I'm sure that many of them are genuine, so I'm not knocking them at all. But then you just sort of see them fade And sometimes I wonder, well, how many times has that been true in my life? How many times is it true of people in my own church family where we we find that, you know, okay, we can have this relationship with Jesus, but then it just becomes a little difficult and we get distracted with all the other things that we have self-interest in. And so we really don't try Jesus. In fact, you can't try Jesus. To try Jesus means to be all out, everything on the table. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. You can't be one foot in, one foot out. You can't be lollygagging around the track and go, I think I'm going to really win this one. Hey, how's everybody else doing, right? You can't be catching the ball and go, I think I'm going to roam over here a little bit and I'll get to that third touchdown line eventually. No, there's this all-out effort to know Christ. And if you put the all-out effort into knowing Christ, you will not be disappointed. You will not be one of those that say, hey, I tried it and it fell short. You will find that sometimes it's difficult, but it's definitely rewarding. And then we could be a church that soft sells sells salvation in the gospel and the cost of following Christ. But we can't be a church like that because that's not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ has people like Paul in it that says, I strain towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal. We just have to be real with ourselves and ask ourselves, have we ever really given God the chance to consume and take over our life? Now there's a couple key things that he's saying here in this passage if you want to do that. One thing, he says, is forgetting what is behind. Do any of you have pain or failure in your past that seems to nip at your heels every day. You think about it. I failed. I I was short in that experience. Well, that was a stupid decision. I wish I could go back and have a mulligan over and redo. And your mind goes there a lot. And Paul's saying one thing you have to do is you have to forget what is behind. It's not that you're forgetting maybe the learning experiences from that, but you can't dwell on the past. And that dwelling on the past actually has a couple dimensions to it. But I want to exhort you in both of them. 
There is no past pain or failure worth fixating on to exclude us from going forward in the present. And you almost like have to reach down there and grab it. Maybe it's a personality dysfunction. Maybe it was a sin you fell into. Maybe it's something else somebody did to you, did you wrong. And you're fixated on it. And if you're fixated on that, then you're not pressing on ahead to the things that Christ wants you. And you've just got to let it go. That's easier said than done. I know. I'm, I've been there with you too. You just get to let it go. Let it go. I don't want to let it go. I mean, it's just there. It would hurt. It still hurts. I'm living in the consequences of it. All right. Then throw it at the foot of the cross. Let Jesus care for that hurt and that pain. But you've got to stop fixating on it. You've got to stop fixating on it because it's going to exclude you from moving forward. But you know what? It's not only just the past pain or failure that can keep us from moving forward. It's also the other. There is no past feat or success worth resting on to exempt us from going forward in the present. Bruce Springsteen. Any Bruce Springsteen fans here? How about glory days, right? Anybody want to sing it for us? Glory days, Bruce, man, thinking back, oh, those were glory days. man. How, you know, think back when you're, some of you older people like myself, you know, high school, man, I had some accomplishments there. We won some trophies. I had accolades, man. I was in the loop. And you've been living off of that for your whole stinking life. It's over. It's done. Praise God you were that good. And all the thrill that you had. My little high school won the regional last night back in Indiana. And they're now going to play in the semi-state. And I'm like, that's so cool. We never made it that far, you know. And I'm happy for those young kids. But if you continue to live in your high school days, your glory days, you're not moving forward. But it's just not your high school days, your college days. It may be your success days as a, as a, a business person. Maybe uh, some type of uh, accolade you won in a performance and, and some gift that you have in the arts or sports today. And, and you just sort of live in that experience. And Paul, remember, he was the top of the NFL draft list on the religious scale, right? It's, I consider it all rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so when he says, forgetting what is behind, he's kicking back to the first part of the chapter, and he's saying, let it go. Let's move forward. Praise God, it's, not, it's something that defines you, and you always have, and that's good, but we've got years to take on. Now, what I'm finding at this season of my life, and I'll give my age, I'm 56, all right, is I find a lot of people starting to look at the exit plan. You know what I'm saying? It's like, how do I exit the workplace? How do I have that retirement settled, right? And I'm like, 56, I suppose, whether it's 65 or some people retire early, sometime retire later, but my goodness, Billy Graham lived to be 99, right? So I'm like, his last crusade was when he was, uh, uh, what was it, uh, about 85. And I'm thinking, all right, so let's say 56 to 85, I got 30 years here. Let's get on with it. Let's forget what was behind. And I do. I struggle. I challenge with this because of some of the things God really blessed my wife and I with, success-wise in ministry and otherwise. And it's like, I can live back in the glory days, but God says, get on with it. Forgetting what is behind. Because I'm fixating sometimes. Or I'm resting. And that's all well and good in its place. But it's keeping me from moving forward in the present. From moving forward into more victories. Amen? So he exhorts us that way. And then he comes and he says, all right now, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things that we need to know Christ and press through and order our lives according. And if on some point you think differently, and he says, hey, whatever, you know, he says that too, God will make clear to you. And uh, then he says this statement that I want to unpack today. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What does he mean by that? What we have already attained. Because we've attained all these great works in our faith and who I am as a Christian and, and what I've done or not done. Um, well, 
I want to go, I don't think it's a cul-de-sac this morning. I believe it's front and center of importance to us. But I want to go on a little bit of a theological journey. And this is what I needed prayer for today. Because it's real easy to skim and do a cheerleading session. But I know that me just charging and encouraging you through God's word and what Paul said today will be fleeting in your life unless you really grab a hold of truth transforming truth that changes the way you think and the way you live and you operate by day by day. And so I want to try to unpack a theological term that some of you are familiar with, some of you uh, maybe not so much. And so hopefully you won't get lost with me. You promise not to get lost. I mean, this isn't a time to doze and go, okay, Thanks for the big theology lesson. The reason there's theology, theology is the study of God, all right? And God truth, God truth is liberating, it's freeing, it redirects our life, it doesn't beat you up, all right? It right-sizes the world around us. Theology is important, and there's a term called sanctification that I want to unpack a little bit. And it hinges on what he's saying here of what we have already attained. Who is we? It's referring to himself and all believers in Christ. What have we obtained? Well, we have attained a lot in Christ. Aside from all the things maybe you've accomplished in becoming more like Christ. And it's packed in this word sanctification. I'm also going to throw the word holiness in there, which is also a scary term for people. And then the other word, which seems to be a little bit more favorable in our culture today, which is the word transformation. So that's why I said when you come here this morning, do you expect God to do anything? Why trust that you expect him to change your life, to transform your life, to meet with him? I trust that you come to experience his holiness and you end up being able to walk a more holy life. A holy life isn't a a killjoy, boring, you know, religious geek kind of life. Holiness is what you should long for. In fact, Scripture exhorts us, God exhorts us, be ye holy as I am holy, it says in First Peter. And you and I need to pursue holiness, but holiness is not a word that we sort of use in our common jargon. How's your holiness doing today, Minor? Uh, thank you very much. I don't know how my holiness is doing today. All right? Checker, what, what about your sanctification? You, you're more sanctified today than you were yesterday? It's like, who are you? Okay? But I want to unpack these terms a little bit, so here we go. Hang with me. The word sanctification means a condition of purity of life and power for living within the human heart. A condition of purity of life and power for living within the human heart. Question. Have you ever made a mess of something and couldn't clean it up? Maybe... uh, You made a mess of your room, kids, and you thought, I can never clean this up. I'm just going to leave it like it is. And somebody has to start somewhere, right? What about a mess in the kitchen? And it exploded. It's like, well, this is a mess. Maybe it's, you know, maybe your car's a mess. You know, maybe your transcript from college is a mess, right? And you're like, how do we clean up the mess Well, if I was to open you up and do some surgery today on the inside, how many of you would say inside, I don't let a lot of people know, it's sort of a private thing, you know, I don't want people, I'm a little embarrassed. But if I was to open you up, you would be a mess. And you try to hold it together in life. I'm fine. Everything's good. How you doing? I'm good. But inside you're saying, I'm not. I am really a mess. I have made so many mistakes and so many wrong path directions. I don't know how I'm ever going to clean this up. The reason you're bothered by that is because you were created in the image of God. And God is perfect. And we long to have a perfectness, a purity, a wholeness of life. And so there is an ongoing, whether you realize it or not, a challenge in your life to clean it up, to have a purity of life and have a power for living within your heart. But here's your challenge. There's not a lot you can do about it because the scripture says that we are dead in our sins. We are dead spiritually. 
We are hopeless. That's why God did something in sending his son and what we'll be you know, com- you know, uh, worshiping and re- celebrating on during the Passion Week. He not only sent his son, his son did this work on the cross and through the power of his resurrection that makes it possible for us to have purity of life and power for living so that we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. God did something to clean up your mess and my mess. And the world just passes by and mocks God, indifferent to Jesus, uses Jesus' name in vain. How God's heart must grieve. Wake up, O world! I've done something so that you can have purity of life and power for living. This is the good news, the evangel that we share, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right centered in this gospel is not only the truth about salvation, but the truth about sanctification. The word sanctification means a condition of purity of life and powerful living within the human heart to be set apart from sin and set apart to God by the indwelling presence, character, and Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus. That's how you and I are going to experience this knowing Christ and getting on with where Paul's exhorting his followers to go. We have to understand not only salvation, but sanctification. See, I could preach on salvation today. I could give a great big altar call. Raise, and how many of you? But the majority of you here in this room, the vast majority, have crossed the line of salvation. You've received Christ into your life. Praise God. And if you haven't had that beautiful opportunity yet, then you need to be focused on the initial point of salvation, of receiving Jesus Christ into your life. But once Jesus Christ comes into your life, salvation is secured, and now you step into the sanctification process until you're glorified ultimately. We'll look at that in a second when Christ returns. And this sanctification process, it means to be set apart and to be set apart from sin and to be set apart to God. It's a separateness. Not a separateness like, oh, they're a weird Christian, or they don't do that. They don't do this like, I don't want that kind of life. They're sort of hokey. They're sort of religious straitjacket. You know, all those kinds of stereotypes that maybe get thrown up into our mind that we think other people are thinking. No, set apart means you're set apart to purity of life, cleanliness inside, and set apart the purposes of God, his power for living. This is what you should long for. You should long for sanctification in your life. Well, how does sanctification happen? It happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's where it starts. Christ Jesus living within you. You've been identified with him in his cross, his crucifixion. It's no longer you who really lives. It's his power and his life that lives within you. So here's the deal. You don't clean up your life. You get a replaced life. And the replaced life is the life of Jesus within you. And you begin living for him. And that's where your sanctification comes from. Here's a a quote from a theologian, if you will, wrote a book, David Peterson, Possessed by God, a New Testament theology of sanctification and holiness. He says this, Sanctification is commonly regarded as a process of moral and spiritual transformation following conversion or salvation. In the New Testament, however, it primarily refers to God's way of taking possession of us in Christ, setting us apart to belong to him and to fulfill his purpose for us. Sanctification certainly has a present and ongoing, its present and ongoing effects But when the Greek verb to sanctify and the Greek noun sanctification are used, the emphasis is regularly on the saving work of God in Christ applied to believers through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying here is sanctification is an ongoing process, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but it's primarily referring to this work that's done already in you through the saving work of God in Christ. And so you're not grabbing a hold. Where's my sanctification? Oh, it's floating around. I'm behind. Where is it? 
I'm really behind my sanctification. Well, in part, maybe you are true behind in your sanctification, but initially you need to understand this. Your sanctification comes to the saving work of Christ. So that which was salvation springs into sanctification, all based upon what Christ did at the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. I want to give you three realities of sanctification, or three um, aspects of sanctification. The first is positional sanctification. And the second will be crisis sanctification. And the third will be progressive sanctification. This is the truth. This is what you need to stay tuned, not doze. Theology here, it's going to help you live your life. Because some of you are struggling this morning. You're beating yourself up. You're living fixated in the past, whether on pain or failure or living off the glory days. This is truth for you this hour. Your positional, I forgot an eye there, your positional reality of sanctification. What is it? It's the holiness of Christ gifted at conversion by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Your sanctification begins the moment you invite Jesus into your life because he is the one who is pure and powerful. You never ever have to worry that you do not have positional sanctification. Positional means this is where I'm at in life. You want to see where I'm I'm in Christ. I have a purity of life and a power for living because Christ dwells within me. His indwelling Holy Spirit brings positional sanctification. Now, some people refer to this as, hey, baptism of the Spirit or other kinds of things. You need to understand this. The fullness of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, being sanctified by the Spirit is a position that's granted for every Christ follower up front. You don't have to strive towards it in the big picture of things, because it's granted to you. Your sanctification is in Christ. He is the pure one. You can't clean your act up. He comes and replaces it. And as you walk with him, he begins to work through you, as we'll mention. But positionally, you are sanctified in Christ. The second then, the referencing of this verse of Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. All right, Jesus is the one who makes you holy. And you are holy then together with the next person around the circle or down the row because we are in Christ, okay? And Jesus, isn't that cool? Jesus is not ashamed, <clears throat> excuse me, to call them brothers. Your positional sanctification. The second is a crisis point of sanctification. is misunderstood a lot of times it's never preached we started to get into this in our life group some last week when we were talking about spiritual growth and that there's a point in our time in life where you know God made some major overhaul and it's different with different people but I believe that there's a crisis point of sanctification that comes and I've equated it to this awakening to the resurrected life of Christ within and death to self. So your positional sanctification is true, but some of you are ignorant to it. Ignorant in an okay kind of way. I'm like, like, not that you're stupid. All right? You've just not been enlightened to this. It was true of me in my life. There was a striving in my life to die to self and become more like Jesus that wore me out. Wore me out. And one day I was sitting on top of a mountain in Israel. Some of you may have heard me share this before. It's a mountain called Masada. It's actually the last stronghold of the Jewish people when the Romans took them over back in 70 AD. And I read this little book here called The Christ Life. And there was a crisis moment in my life where I was awakened to the truth that it wasn't me who needed to do the self-improvement. 
I needed to rest upon what Christ already had done in me. And so there's this crisis where you realize that you not necessarily need to die to self because that's already positionally ours. I'm crucified with Christ as past tense. But if you are talking about dying and awakening to the reality that you're dead, that's a crisis. Have you had that crisis where you realize I am a dead man? I'm a dead woman. I am a dead student. I'm a dead child. I am dead in my transgressions and sins, and I have to die. Not my will, but your will be done. And you are awakened to this reality, and sometimes you're holding on to things. To me, I held on to things like I want my future vocation to be my choice. I want my future mate choice to be my choice. These are my things. God, you can sort of be here in my hip pocket, but please stay out of the way for this other stuff. And God said, Carrie, you need to let go of that. You need to understand that you are dead. It's not your will. It's to be my will. This is what Jesus took upon himself when he went to the cross. And so there's this awakening within that I am dead with Christ, but I am made alive with him. This comes from a passage in Romans 6, 11. It says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. In this little Christ life book, which is all beat up for me, it's on my shelf and it's marked. I got a tab. Actually, the tab here is marked on an incredible poem that, that I love to quote, and it's a poem that has so much power for me. It just simply says this, Resurrected with my risen Savior, seated with him at his own right hand, this the glorious message Easter brings me, this the place in which by faith I stand. Men would bid you to rise to higher levels, but they leave you on a human plane. We must have a heavenly resurrection. We must die with Christ and rise again. Once there lived another man within me, child of earth and slave of Satan, he, but I nailed him to the cross of Jesus, and that man is nothing now to me. Now another man is living in me, and I count his blessed life as mine. I have died with him to all my own life. I have risen to all his life divine. Oh, it is so sweet to die with Jesus and by death be free from self and sin. Oh, it is so sweet to live with Jesus as he lives the death-born life within. This... Amen. Simpson did a great job with that. And he knew it. This is why I needed prayer today. Because this is the truth that needs to liberate some of us in this room. You're trying and you're trying and you're trying. When the Apostle Paul said, only let us live up to what we have already attained. He was saying, no, the sanctification position you have in Christ Come to that crisis point of sanctification when you realize you're dead. Nail that dead man to the tree. And then stay rooted in your grave. A big oak is a big oak. Why? Because its roots are still in its grave. I have died with Christ. I've risen to all his life divine. I need to reckon with this. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. And so you tell Satan in the face when he comes and he tempts you to fall morally, to fall ethically, or to just fall short of loving people like you need to. You just say, Satan, get behind me because I have died to my own life and Christ now lives within me. Holy Spirit, you take your sanctification, you live through me in this moment. This is theology, but it's life. It's not a religion of works. See, I'm struggling with this passage because typically I want to know Christ. You're going to walk out of here and say, oh, I got to do better. I got to do better. I don't want you walking out of here. Oh, I got to do better. I want you walking out of here to say he's done it all. He's done it all and you just rest in him. Stay dead to self, but alive to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you choose every day to walk that sanctification out. There's the positional sanctification, the crisis point of sanctification. But then the last is the progressive process of sanctification, which is the ongoing transformation of yielding to this indwelling Holy Spirit that lives in your life every day. Every day. And you're yielding in every turn. Not to the old sinful nature, because that's not your nature anymore. You've been given a new nature. It's the spirit nature, and you yield to it. And it's an ongoing process of sanctification. 
progressive sanctification. And this is normally what people think when they think in terms of sanctification. And it's true, it's a part of it. Paul's going to say it's a part of us here in a second. But you cannot have progressive sanctification if you don't realize your positional sanctification, if you not come to a point of crisis sanctification in realizing that you're dead but alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. How do we perfect that holiness? How do we purify it for ourselves? Remembering it's Christ in us. It's his purity of life. It's power living within us to be able to help us live out that holiness. So there's your three. Positional, crisis, progressive sanctification. We're done with our theology lesson. I'm moving back to that verse. Philippians 3.15, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things that if on some point you think differently, that God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Lean in to your positional sanctification. Allow that crisis time to come in your life when you realize that you need to die to self and live to him because it's already true. Then he says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. Where's he heading here now? Because of this sanctifying work of Christ in you, which is your hope of glory, you now need to walk it out. And how you walk it out, one of the first things you do is be mindful of the people you place around you of influence in your life. This is where Paul can be seen as arrogant. Follow me as I follow Christ. Hey, follow my example. I'm pretty cool. It's me. He's not saying, hey, come be a follower of Paul. He's saying, I am trying to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection is, I'm trying to do this. You, you can follow my example. Here's my question to you. Actually, two questions. Who are you following and who is following you? Yeah, yeah, spend some time tonight thinking about that. Really? Who is ahead of you that you're trying to follow in life? I want to be like them. Right? Tiger Woods is back on the course and he's doing pretty good. He's in contention to win after four years. With all of his back surgery issues today, he could very well win uh, uh, as a a tournament. So many people came into golf because they wanted to be like Tiger, right? Just like you have mentors or people that you know want to model your life after. Maybe it's not sports, it's not music, it's not career-wise. Who is it that you're following that knows Christ? And then who is following you? Yes, your children are, your family, and they should be following you as you follow Christ. But it's said that over our lifetime, we can influence 250 people in a significant kind of way. And so, more broadly, who is following you, and do you want them following the example of your sanctification in the life that you have? He then gets pretty intense with a few things, and he says this following on that verse. Maybe I lost my remote here because it fell. For as I've often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. He contrasts people you shouldn't follow. Whether these are the Judaizers we talked about last week or they're unbelievers that are messing with Christian believers in Philippi, we don't really fully know. But he's saying they live as enemies, not of Christ, but they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And there's three things that, uh, there's different things that are going to come from this. Maybe I lost my battery connection. Enemies of the cross of Christ are those who despise and distort the truth and necessity of the work of the cross. The next one is their destiny is destruction. Their destiny is destruction is that they um, are headed towards a Christless eternity. As non-believers, there's an eternal judgment that stands before them. Their God is their stomach. It doesn't mean that their um, God is that their God is that they are gluttons, all right? It says this, next slide, my remote's not working, all right? They're enslaved to physical lusts of food, money, sex, pleasure, and power. Then he says their glory is in their shame. What does that mean? They're proud of their lifestyle of sin and their independence from God. And then the last thing of the five, their mind is on earthly things. 
put, they put their heart and their hope in earthly goals of earthly gains. He's saying, don't, don't, don't go this direction and be influenced by these and your progressive sanctification. Get people around you that make you hungry to know Christ and to follow him more. And be mindful of all that's happening here. And then in verse 20 it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, come back and reckon with your position in Christ, who you are. You are a citizen of another realm, a realm of heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. This here is my passport. Would you like to see my passport picture? There it is. If I go to another country, I better have this. If I'm in another country, guess what? I say, I'm a citizen of the United States. But you as a Christian believer, you are a citizen, maybe United States, maybe you got dual citizenship, some of you in here, maybe there's some other country that you're from that you're still attached to as a citizen, but you need to know positionally where you're at in Christ is you are now a citizen of heaven and to act accordingly. So we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, He will transform, He will sanctify, He will make holy our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. So here's the good news. You are positionally sanctified in Christ. He may very well need to bring you to a new place of crisis to realizing it's not you, but it's him. That he is the one who's walking you out with the progressive sanctification. He's transforming your lowly body so they will be like his heavenly body. One of the old time preachers I used to read after a lot is Vance Havner. He says this, if you are a Christian, you are not a citizen of this world trying to get to heaven. You are a citizen of heaven making your way through this world. And as you make your way through this world, because Christ through his spirit dwells within you, you have a purity of life and a power for living that nothing can touch. Do you own it? Do you possess it in your knowledge, but in your experience? When Paul exhorts us to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Not that he's already obtained it or already been made perfect, but that he presses on to take hold of that. When he says all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. When he encourages us to live up to what we have already attained. When he says that we should be mindful of those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, but we are citizens of heaven and we should eagerly await the Savior from there who's transforming our bodies. He's telling you and I to wake up to this world of sanctification, holiness, transformation that's going on. And it's based primarily on what Christ has already done. Will you let him work out that sanctification through you? I can invite the band to come. We're going to close by going back and singing that creed's